Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. I want to remind listeners to go to econtalk.org, where you'll find a link devoted to our annual survey of your favorite episodes of last year. Today is January 12th, 2023, and my guest is neuroscientist, philosopher, and author Sam Harris. He hosts the podcast Making Sense and is the creator of the meditation app Waking Up. Sam recently hosted me on his podcast Making Sense, and he graciously invited me to change places at the table and let me interview him. Sam, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, great to see you, Russ. I want to let parents listening with young children know this conversation may stray into adult themes, so feel free to vet it before sharing. And our first topic, Sam, is you. Uh, give us a thumbnail of how you came to be where you are with a incredibly popular podcast, an incredibly popular meditation app. How'd that happen? Well, I started as a writer, and... Um I was, you know, I started kind of in an unconventional spot there because I uh, started. I wrote my first book in the middle of what should have been my PhD thesis beginning. I had just finished my research doing um, fMRI scanning of of uh, people at the Brain Mapping Center at UCLA, and um, actually, I just no, sorry, I just finished my coursework and I was uh, beginning my research. And then September 11th happened. I wrote my first book, The End of Faith, and that proved so controversial. And the the conversation around those issues was so rich and interesting that uh, I quickly wrote a second book in response to the pushback there, a letter to a Christian nation. And that essentially sidelined me for about four years during my PhD. I had a I had a toe in the lab, but you know barely a toe for four years. So I. I took um, nine years to finish my PhD, and, and that, that's really what writing was doing to me during that time. But, but it was really as the basis, uh, on the basis of my, my writing platform that I launched my podcast and then subsequently the, the Waking Up app. And so I was fairly early to podcasting. I had been a guest on a few podcasts. I'd been a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast and uh, I think Tim Ferriss's uh, maybe one or two others, and and I just thought, well, oh, this is interesting. This is you know, if you had told me that I might one day go into radio, I, I wouldn't. I would have told you you were insane. But something about the medium made it seem different, and so I, I just started recording pieces of audio. Initially, they were solo, you know, audio riffs or essays, and then I, I was rele- releasing those sporadically without really even thinking that I had a podcast. And then at a certain point, I was interviewing other people more or less once a week, and, and I had a, a podcast in earnest, and that's that's how it started. What have you learned from being a podcaster? Changed in any way? Well, personally, I've learned about the power of incentives because as much as I've wanted to get back to writing books, but having a podcast has shown me that um, – 
like uh, this won't, su- won't surprise you as an economist, but like virtually everyone, I am a creature of incentives, and all of the incentives are aligned away from writing books at the moment. And podcasting is easier. I reach many more people, and it's a better business, right? So there's really so for me to go back to writing and embrace the opportunity cost of writing at the moment, I really have to decide, well, I I, I don't care about doing the harder thing. I'm happy to do the harder thing. I don't care about reaching fewer people. I don't care about it taking much longer to reach those fewer people. Uh, And I don't care about losing money. I mean, so it's just, it's like all the incentives are wrong for writing my next book. So uh, as if by magic, I haven't done that. I I think I will ultimately do it because I think writing... Is just a it's just a muscle you you know as a thinker you need to work and you really don't think as clearly as you can unless you're writing your thoughts and 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 finally producing the sentence that you think is the best version of, of any specific thought. Um, so I, I I do I, I that that is a loss to me, but it's it's really um it's been great. I mean, podcasting is as you know so different from writing because you're. You're not doing it alone. You're, you know, you and I are having a conversation now, and we have an excuse to have this conversation. And it's a, uh, the truth is, it's a conversation I'd want to have anyway for free, right? So it's, it's just, it's really, it's an amazing opportunity to use media to, um, you know, help the people who want to hear these conversations and to have fun uh, ourselves. It's just, it's, I feel immensely lucky. But is it, taught you anything and you, you could have read the books of all your guests mm. many of them write books yep. do you find talking to the rather diverse range of people that you speak to does it affect you in any way Does it affected your thinking uh yeah certainly because it it has you know as a writer i'm not someone who interviews people for the most part to to, uh, by way of research, I, you know, I was obviously reading a lot of books to, to be a writer of nonfiction, but um, there is something about talking to smart people and having them you know, push back against your views in real time that is, is, is something you can't really supply for yourself in the same way. I mean, writing or reading a book, I guess, provides that. I mean, it is, it is conversational in a way, but... Um, I don't know. I think it's it's uh, it's incredibly useful to be in dialogue and to have the 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 time course of one's uh, of feedback be shorter and shorter. Right? You know, when you when you write a book, you, it takes you a year or more to write it. It then sits with your publisher for eleven months or so. Then it goes out into the world. Then you get some feedback if if people review it or people react to it, but. You know the time course of, of correction and uh, you know fertilization of of you know further conversation is so slow. It's uh, it, it's it's they're almost not even analogous processes, even though they're 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 quite similar. That the time course changes everything. Yeah, I never thought about that. I I often will get on a topic and interview a series of people in clumps. You know, I'll read somebody's book, and then three weeks later or a month later, I'll interview a person on the other side or a related theme. Like you, I'm very interested in consciousness, so I've done a bunch of interviews on that. And I never thought about the fact that, you know, you read a book about consciousness by an author, and then maybe you read another one down the road that has a different 
take, different perspective. But but in podcasting, you, you're almost inevitably doing it over a relatively short period of time. And then you're in dialogue rather than in your own head, the way you would be as a reader with diverse ideas or different takes or perspectives. And it, um, I guess it quickens the pace. Uh, one of the things I find extraordinary about podcasting for a long time, as you have, is how many connections I see between topics and episodes that don't necessarily seem related. And when those are coming quickly and you're seeing those connections, I, I find it, you know, people claim to learn things from me, which I appreciate, but I've learned so much from being an interviewer, not just from the content I've consumed to prepare for them, but to have that conversation like we're having now yeah. and to have it, it's eight, eight at night here in Jerusalem and it's, uh, it's 10 in the morning in California where you are and well, that's a miracle. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's not just nice to have the conversation. Uh, if we weren't podcasting, we probably wouldn't be talking. And so it is very special. Yeah, well, that's what I've appreciated about it most, really. Is, you know, writing is such a solitary endeavor. And podcasting, especially if you're, you're mostly doing interviews, is a completely different experience because you're, you now have a venue – to invite people to to and and you're you're helping them you're helping them launch their books in many cases and, and but it is just like this guilty pleasure to be able to talk to the smartest people in the world and about anything and to be and 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 it when you have a successful podcast you're not really asking a favor of them you're you're doing them a favor if anything and so it's it's just it's wonderful to be able to do and it's it's just good company, right? You just you just get to meet people you wouldn't otherwise have an excuse to meet. I wouldn't reach out to even a favorite author just to reach out to them, but because I have a podcast and because they've, their publicist may have even hurled their next book at me, it's just that we're naturally thrown together in conversation, and it's it, it's it, you know yeah it, it builds relationships. It's it's quite amazing. Just for the record, I just want to get this down. Mm -hmm. On January 2023, I want to interview Tom Stoppard and Mark Knopfler, and I can't get to them. So, if anybody out there knows how I can get a hold of them, you know, Mark Knopfler is my favorite songwriter and guitarist, probably of mm -hmm. all time, and and Tom Stoppard's my favorite playwright. Um, and it, it's possible. It is possible, yeah. like you say. Yeah. You know, normally you'd say, well, you know, you can go watch him a concert or go to one of his plays. But otherwise, that's it. But, you know, I have a, a dream that if they knew I wanted to interview them, they might come on, either of them. Maybe it's, both. Uh, I, Maybe both at the same I time. I would put the odds, yeah. even odds, I would say, for, for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much time do you spend reading? Um, Not for podcasting, just in general. Well, that that's a hard line to draw because I have, to a significant deg degree, designed my podcast around what I feel like reading next, right? So I, yeah. too. <laughs> so I just decide what I want to read. And then I have has uh, the afterthought is, oh, wait a minute. If this person's alive, I might be able to talk to them. Yeah, and, why not? And so there, there's significant overlap between what I'm reading and what I'm reading for work. Um, again, this comes back to being immensely lucky and feeling just pure gratitude for the existence of this medium. 
Um, and it is, it is psychologically inscrutable to me that it seems so different from radio. It's like I'd never, superficially, it's, it's the exact same thing. I mean, this is just radio on demand, right? But it's, uh, I, I couldn't have imagined going into radio and, and I still don't feel I'm in radio now. And yet basically this is, <laughs> this is delayed radio. Uh, you know, when I started, I, I told my dad I was going to go for an hour. That was my goal. Huh. An hour each episode. And he and many, many others said, oh, no, no, no. Audio, 10 minutes is an eternity. Right. No, you know, th- a, 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 three minutes is a typical thing. And like NPR might do a 10-minute segment, but no one's going to listen to an hour. And boy, were they wrong. Um, and people, of course, will listen for two and three and four hours. There's, there's a demand uh, for, for longer and longer podcasts. And that is um, the obvious reason it's very different from radio. It's it's an extended uh, – it's kind of the difference between a miniseries and a sitcom. <laughs> uh, mm. It's just a different phenomenon, even though on the surface they're somewhat similar. Well, well just uh, on that point, I, and I, again, I find this is also psychologically somewhat inscrutable. Not having a schedule and not having a hard time limit to uh, an episode – it actually changes the conversation significantly. I mean, even if we, even in a radio segment where you have a full hour, the fact that you have exactly an hour, right, changes the conversation. Even so, it's just a freewheeling conversation that happens to end at fifty-nine minutes, I feel is very different from a conversation that has to end at fifty-nine minutes. And and so it's, yeah, it. it uh, there's something about it being on demand. There's the fact that everyone has found all of these interstitial moments in their lives, you know, while they're commuting or doing the dishes or whatever it is, working out, where they can listen to audio. Uh, it, the, the, that sort of multitasking phenomenon. I think it's, um, yeah. I mean, this is this feels like the golden age or a new golden age of of audio, and it's. Uh, I'm just very happy to. To have benefited from it, yeah. It's the, I say it's the golden age of curious people mm. for curious people, and it's it's also the golden age for you know visual storytelling, the opportunity to tell. Um, you know, Hollywood's struggling, but everything else is phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah. But the thing about audio I, is everyone's that. everyone has found an, an extra ninety minutes in their day. It seems. And that and that really is a matter of audio over video. I mean, I, I guess once once yeah. we have perfectly self driving cars, maybe video will will supersede audio there. Yeah. But short of that, I just you know, speaking personally, like I I take long walks and I you know I'm listening to audio books and podcasts and you know just it's it's fantastic. I mean, I get two hours of walking and two hours of listening to your favorite information. It's um uh, I I don't know who I was ten years ago, but I wasn't doing that. So, yeah, I'm just going to add, I, I, I didn't think about the, the open endedness of the 59 minute point. Um, having moved to Israel, I wrote about this recently. I put a link up to it, but when you first get here, you think the service in the restaurant's awful. Mm. People bring you the food, the waitress or waiter, and then they disappear and they don't come back. (laughs) They don't say, can I get you anything else? Uh, how's the how's the food? And in America, when I come back to America now, it's it's startling. They badger you every every two minutes. Yeah, what? they just badger you every two minutes. Yeah. Oh yeah, 
and then but the but the key the key difference is that they don't bring you the check here. And you have to go find them usually, wave right. them down or go out and get right. it. And Americans find this frustrating. Israelis, when they go to America, find it shocking that the check shows up unasked for, which they clearly see and correctly as an invitation to leave. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the Middle East, which is where I live, uh, meals are open-ended. And you can sit in a cafe, and you can do this in America too, but it's just blatantly clear here for not just coffee shops, but other types of, of many types of restaurants. You sit there for as long as you want with your friend, and no one's going to bother you. And uh, it changes the nature of conversation mm -hmm. when you don't feel like you have to hustle hustle along. And I, it's just it's a great insight. Yeah. I'm going to suggest that you are an example of a phenomenon that I think is a new phenomenon. Um, you know, if I had to describe you, I'd say you're a public intellectual. That's one phrase that people would use. Um, it's a phrase I don't like, mm. personally. Uh, I'm not sure why I don't like it. I've never liked it when it's applied to me. But you're something more than that. And I, I would describe you as a secular preacher, an atheist rabbi. You're in a small group with Jordan Peterson. I don't know who else you'd put in the group. Uh, but people don't just listen to you because you're smart. Uh, they don't just listen to you because you're interesting and entertaining. They look to you for meaning and guidance. Mm. Am I right? And what does that feel like? How did it come about? And what are the upsides and downsides of that? Well, I think it's a matter of... The the kinds of topics I've focused on. It's, it's just, it's a matter of what I have found interesting and what I have made my areas of, of relative expertise, just because I've, I've spent so much time focusing on these questions. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just interested in the nature of human subjectivity, how our scientific understanding of, of ourselves is increasingly encroaching on, you know, ancient ways of, of deluding ourselves about ourselves, I would say, um, to say something underhanded about religion. Um, and so, you're, so you have a, we, we may get into that. Um, yeah, I'll come back to that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, the, just how can we live the best lives possible in light of the fact that we all are going to lose everything we love in this world? And these are, these are the, you know, these are the deepest questions of you know what are what are you as a as a being in this world and what should you do given the the full range of of wonderful and terrible experiences on offer uh, and given the fact that impermanence reigns right you can't hold on to anything in the end how is it possible to to be fulfilled and to live a good life within those constraints, and and what can we know about um, how to do that wisely, and how can we know when we're making obvious and, and needless errors, and how do we mitigate human suffering, and 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 what what does science have to say about all that, and how do we get a how do we have a conversation about uh, what we believe to be true? about all that that is increasingly useful 
and open-ended and and um, tracking of reality rather than you know spiraling into some you know awful uh, and divisive state of of delusion and uh, fractiousness and and you know, failures of cooperation and failures to solve absolutely necessary coordination problems and so it's like I, that's where i've focused and and the nature of that focus is really by definition interdisciplinary i've, I've never re- respected the the boundaries or apparent boundaries between fields of knowledge i'm a big fan of the notion of consilience or, or the unity of knowledge uh i think much of our our uh, partitioning of of domains you know the, the the wall between neuroscience and philosophy of mind say or or you know economics uh, is is really uh, those those partitions are are enshrined by two things. One is it's just it's hard to be a polymath, right? It's you know there's just too much to know. But and that's you know that's a natural partition, perhaps. But uh, there's some very smart people who can traverse all of those boundaries, and that's wonderful. But the other reason is just. You know, the, the architecture of the university, right, and and the and the and the, the the nature of bureaucracy and the and and just the laziness of of uh, the born of um, uh, the norms that that grow up around that, and um, you know, I mean, it, it's it, it, I, I do consider myself more of a generalist than a specialist at this point. I, I think of necessity, and so I, I don't. Uh, discount the need for specialization, and so some people specialize so fully that, yeah, of course, the, their career intellectually is, is going to observe the obvious boundaries between, let's say, molecular biology and everything else. Um, but I just, I, I do think there's a role for you know, and I'm not, I don't shy away from the the phrase public intellectual. I think it, it sounds pretentious when applied to oneself, but I, I don't I, I like you, I don't have a better name for the work that certain people do trying to integrate various fields of knowledge and make those integrations useful to the general public. I just think that's I think it's a, a good role. And it's not importantly, it's not the role of a journalist, right? Or or it's not the role of a mere journalist. I mean you know it's in journalism not to denigrate journalism, I think we absolutely need more of it. But I, I don't consider myself a journalist, even when I'm trying to present a factually accurate picture of something that's happened or you know what's been said, etc. Um, you know, I do have a, I do have my own point of view on a wide variety of topics, and I try to you know obviously you know if for no other reason to, than to avoid embarrassment, I try to have a well informed point of view on those topics and that's not quite the same thing as as journalism i noticed in that summary that you said um what we can learn from science about a life well lived you didn't say it quite like mm. that but or about the human experience you did not mention art or fiction or other things was that a uh, the, yeah, that, was that deliberate? No, that was a uh, uh, perhaps uh, just the burden of, of uh, long-winded grammar. But um, no, I, I I think ironically, I think the um, 
if anything, you know, recent developments in culture and the so the the overwhelming influence of technologists at the moment um, suggest to me that the relevance of the humanities to our intellectual lives has never been more pressing. Right? I, mean, I just I think what we're suffering from now are, are the, the 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 outsized influence of many smart people. Who are who don't have much of a an education in the humanities? Who haven't read enough good books? Right? You got a lot of people in Silicon Valley who've read a, a lot of science fiction and uh, too much Ayn Rand, and they have this enormous influence uh, on culture. But if for no other reason that they've, they've built the tools that are dictating so much of what is said and, and done at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's much more. To um, a picture of of you know the, the human circumstance and uh, how we respond to our existential concerns than a a narrowly scientific one, but uh, I would say that when getting our heads heads straight about a, a topic matters, rationality is is the essential uh, tool. For us to use, so so rationality obviously suggests a larger footprint than than lab coded science, but it is distinct from you know mere uh, aesthetics and mere uh, the mere creation of beautiful fictions, and it's certainly distinct from wishful thinking and uh, tribalism and and you know frank bias, and I, so I do I do think that. I say in one one place, I think it's in might be in my first book. I, t- I talk about us really needing to navigate by by love and curiosity, and I, and I, I really I do think I say I believe I say this. I think I think of reason as the guardian of love, right? Like if you, if you it's it's not it's often alleged that ra- there's something cold about rationality or that it's um it's uh the opposite of many things we care about but i i more and more i view it as as the guardian of everything we care about i just think that the mo- the moment you you give too much scope for the irrational and the and the specious you just start to bump into hard objects in the dark and you know, I mean, reality has a structure, and insofar as our conversation with one another can be truth tracking uh, and consistent, um, you know, the, that allows us to avoid the most unpleasant collisions, both with with one another and just the the way the world is, you know, however it is. Uh, obviously. And we had a we had a great conversation on your podcast uh, recently on on some of these topics, uh, but not so much on this. And you know, underlying it is the you're one of the most famous atheists in the world, um, and I live a, a committed Jewish life, uh, meaning or I call it, I like to call it serious, meaning I pay attention to Jewish law, and I make I make more room in in my life, I think, but maybe not. For what I would call the mystical, I don't call the mystical the irrational. Mm. I agree with you on that. 
I think irrational and emotional can be a, a great um, danger. But I also think there's a great danger to reason in that it's hard for us to remember that, um, you know, I like Richard Feynman's version. The most important thing is not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm very wary. It's my Hayekian side and my, to the extent I understand the philosophy of Charles Peirce and the pragmatists, a recognition that reason is, is um, an incredibly powerful tool that if worshipped can lead to great to great danger also. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever quoted this on the program, but Annie Lamott says, uh, God's name is not me. And whether you believe in God or not, a serious religious person has a humility, should have, I believe, a humility about them in the face of the transcendent, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, and again, even if you don't believe in God, in the face of the tininess of the of the human mind and our human existence, and I think the risk of the of the other side, the over trust and reason, is to put humanity on a pedestal, and I that hasn't turned out very well historically. So that would be my pushback. You want to react to that? Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I just I'm not quite standing where I where you're pushing back because I, I do view reason rightly conceived, and I view mysticism slash slash spirituality rightly conceived as two modes in which we transcend the self. Right. So, I, I, self transcendence, I think, is the the center of the bullseye for so many things we care about, whether it's acknowledged generally or not. But if, when you look at what it means to live an, an ethically good life, when you look at what it means to live a, a rationally coherent life or to, or to create a, a rationally coherent worldview, and when you look at what it means to occupy the, the furthest reach, reaches of, of psychological well-being and, I would argue, normativity – I think transcending the ego, transcending the, the, the selfish, self-directed, narcissistic illusion of, you know, it's, it's me in here, the, the primacy of me in here, you know, the, the subject um, who is thinking uh, and seeming to author his own thoughts. Uh, that transcendence is the whole point of being alive, in the end, I mean, and and when it ha when it happens to you in a haphazard way, uh, or your or it's um, you know you are lured into experiencing it uh, through some agency outside yourself. Uh, let's say you're you know you take a, a psychedelic drug, or you have some uh, profound experience of of um, falling in love, or you know some collision with natural beauty, or you know, you're a scientist who discovers something that that and that discovery overwhelms you with awe. And these are these are glimpses of a bigger view of of mental life that is, you know, I would argue intrinsically pro-social and 
It's the basis for compassion, you know, real compassion, uh, rather than pity or uh, some, you know, simulacrum. And it really is just, it's, this is the good stuff in life, you know, falling in, lo- in love, caring about others uh, as much or even more than, you, than you care about yourself, or even just seeing your own self- selfishness become inseparable from a seemingly selfless desire to better the lives of other people, right? Like that what you what you most selfishly want is for other people to succeed, right? That's what's making you happy, right? So the, 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 this opposition, the apparent opposition between selfishness and selflessness breaks down under these conditions. So, yeah, I, I would just say that rationality is one – It's I mean, they're different. Rationality is, is not the same thing as, as mysticism. But I wouldn't say that mysticism or, or spirituality rightly conceived is irrational. What, what I'm calling irrational is to believe things that are, you know, obviously wrong or, or for which you have no, you know, good reasons for belief. Uh, and to be, you know, to, to be believing two things strongly in various moments that are, that cannot be reconciled with one another, you know, so to be an obvious contradiction with yourself and to not notice that. Um, to be dogmatic and, and to be unavailable to better arguments and better evidence in in, in future conversations. Um, so, like something, yeah, something like dogmatism is worth focusing on because I, I view dogmatism as, and this is this is why traditional religion has has come under such you know opprobrium in my in in my discussion of it. I view dogmatism as intrinsically divisive because uh, it's it is the, the the very posture of being inflexible and unpersuadable and uh, it is i mean just when you look at what it is to be dogmatic and and in religion traditionally it's it's only in religion that that being dogmatic is is not considered a bad thing i mean it's not a, to call to say say something as a dogma is not to even say anything invidious in religious terms uh, virtue. Yeah, yeah. So these are so the dogmas you hold religiously and in any other mode of life are these. These are beliefs that you have decided in advance by whatever process, uh, and usually no process apart from receiving them on your mother's knee. Um, these are beliefs that cannot be revised, right? You, that you are unwilling to revise. That, that and that you know. Far too often, you will be offended if anyone, you know, asks you to reconsider them, right? And this, so you're entering every conversation saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm rational. The year is 2023. Happy to talk about anything, but I have a list of beliefs over here that if you challenge them, I'm going to begin to hate you, and I'm certainly not going to rethink any of them, no matter how good your arguments are." That I consider that to be the the fundamental and and obviously fundamentalist religious uh, sensibility. And that I I view as intrinsically divisive. It's it's intrinsically shattering of our epistemology. And I do think we have to overcome that frame of mind where it exists, wherever it exists. And it exists especially in religious contexts, but it's wherever it exists. And it certainly exists in politics and elsewhere. I think it's, it's the enemy of, of reason. Yeah, I'm going to def- I'll defend it a little yeah. bit, and then I want to reflect on it. It was a very thoughtful 
uh, outline of of the challenge of dogmatism. Um, I wrote an essay on, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, uh, Come From Away, the musical. No, no. It's a beautiful, beautiful show. Ridiculously beautiful show. It's about the, on 9-11, U.S. airspace was closed and a bunch of flights had to land in the middle of nowhere in in Canada. And the show is about how the tiny group of people who live there rose to the occasion. And part of the reason they rose to the occasion is that they were, they had a tribal urge and a certain image of themselves as, um, I'd say, resilient, among other things, of course. Some of them not so attractive, probably. But that resilience carried through, and it, and it, say it saved the day is an understatement um, for the people who, who landed there. And similarly, in a religious community that's effective, it's divisive. Dogma is divisive for the people outside the community. It's incredibly unifying and exhilarating for the people inside the community. Um, if you've not been part of that, it's hard to imagine. Hmm. There are very few movies or treatments of it that have captured it. Uh, one of the things I've observed about Stiesel, which is about a religious community, is that they don't romanticize anything in that show about religious life. These are people just like you and me. Um and they've got their own the same problems we have with their children and their worries and their anxieties and their fears and their dreams. And they don't make fun of the religious aspect of it and they don't glorify it. Um, but there is a glorious part to it when it works well. And there's a lot of negatives to it. I'm not going to defend fundamentalism, but I want to say something about I just want to make that point. Mm. I agree with you, it's divisive. It does create an us them. Uh, mindset, but it does change the us in a very powerful way, and it potentially doesn't necessarily harm the them. But it depends. There are many, of course, historical cases that it's otherwise. So I take your point. But I'm I'm thinking about my own life. I'm really into dogma. It's interesting, mm -hmm. right? I'm a for most of my life, I was a very hardcore libertarian, which is a very dogmatic perspective on economics. I became a religious Jew as an adult, you know, around the age of, in my mid early thirties. And I had two different dogmas and they, they, some people would tease me and say, how do you maintain both of those? They, they, you know, they, they conflict. I don't think they conflict. That wasn't, I don't think that's not a, a really interesting question, but I think what's more interesting is I don't really see them as dogmas anymore. Um, in the sense that they're frameworks I use, but I don't, I don't feel I don't feel the same way I did about my economics views as I did 10 years ago. I'm still pretty free market, but I'm not knee-jerk free market. Even if every answer I gave would be, oh, but that's a free market. But, but somehow my experience of it is different. And that would be true of my religious view as well. Um, you know, I have a Jewish practice, but I have lots of doubts. And every serious Jew that I know— hmm. And I can't speak for Christianity or other religions, Islam. I, they have doubts. A lot of people I know have doubts. The framework is a way of living. And for me, and this is for another conversation, Sam, we'll have it maybe after I write another book. For me, it's a way of experiencing the transcendent and the wondrous and the awesome. And the, the us-them part's the least of it. But... um 
I, I agree with you that all I'm really trying to say is that I think many people, their dogmatism is a shield. And if they, if you can learn to, to realize that it's, it's just a shield, it's not hmm. truth. It's just the thing you carry through life to organize your thinking about certain things. It's not as, I don't think it's as bleak as you paint it, but hmm. maybe there are others for which that's, that's the case. Right. Well, um, let me just say that I think reasoning by analogy from Judaism is generally pretty misleading. I mean, I'm, so I'm Jewish. I've obviously gone around this track many different times with, 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 um, people of, of very, of really every faith, um, and there's something about Judaism, and we can talk about the historical and theological reasons why this is so, that uh, makes it an outlier with respect to the kinds of prop- pretensions of propositional knowledge it makes uh, that go under the, the, the banner of faith, right? So, so faith as a Jew is quite a bit more leavened, ironically, with uh, doubt and... Uh, pragmatism yeah. and a, uh, a circumspection uh, when it comes time to making bold claims about what happens after death and and the the, the moral structure of the universe and the behavioral imperatives of of living within that structure. You know, unless you're going to talk about the ultra orthodox with with whom I have not had much contact, but you know, from afar I can see what they're up to. Um, but even so-called conservative rabbis. Uh, that their conservatism is a very misleading adjective when you try to compare it to a conservative Christian or a conservative Muslim orientation. Uh, you know, I have debated. Uh, I was on stage. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hitch and I. I think this was this debate. Christopher Hitchens and I were debating uh, Rabbi David Wolpe and and um, his colleague uh, uh, Rabbi Artson, I think, uh, and. Uh, at one point, I said something that presupposed that the two rabbis, both of whom are conservative, and Wolpe is definitely conservative. Um, Jewishly conservative. Jewishly conservative. Exactly. Yeah, not at all right. So again, this is just how misleading this term is. Um, I said something that presupposed that he believed in a God that can hear our prayers, right? Which is just a leap plain vanilla center of the fairway yeah. commitment of more or less any religious person in any other faith, certainly a conservative one. And uh, he turned to me and said, well, what makes you think I believe in a God who can hear our prayers? Right. And so, and at you know, that point I just, I realized, okay, these are the, 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 um, the lines on the, on the, on the basketball court are not exactly where I thought they were. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's just so that uh, so I would just caution you not to extrapolate from your experience as a Jew of whatever flavor to the experiences of of you know 1.8 billion Muslims and 2.2 billion Christians because in my experience they are they are at least uh, r- rhetorically committed to uh, far more strident assertions of knowledge about 
what happens in the invisible world of you know the, yeah. the, well, after I think death that's, that's true yeah. of the orthodox world in judaism yeah. as well yeah. and it's certainly true in the ultra orthodox but even in the so-called plain orthodox that would be true and i don't want to get into the our listeners are not so interested in right. these, in this uh these distinctions but i um what i'll just say this you wrote a book called free will we might talk about it in a few minutes. We'll see if we get to it. But I read it before this conversation because I'm very interested in the question. And it comes up now and then in all kinds of settings, of yeah. course, on this program. But life, a thoughtful person has to wonder about it, I think. And, uh, you know, Maimonides is one of the great, most people would say he's one of the two or three greatest Jewish thinkers of Jewish history. He believed in free will. But Crescas, a rabbi of his time who I love, uh, did not believe it at all. And it turns out Crescus the Sam Harris mm-hmm. of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I'll send you this uh this thing. We'll talk about okay. it another time. But but I will I'll just I'll 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 concede the point that there's some variety of practices in Judaism that that may not be reflected in other religions. I'm not going to speak about them. You've had a lot more interaction with them yeah. than I have, certainly rhetorically for well, sure. Well you certainly I mean um, you can say that this is how extreme it is. You can say you're Jewish and your Judaism is incredibly important to you, but you don't believe in God, right? That is not a yes, you could that's say not that. a total non sequitur in Judaism. It is a total non sequitur in Christianity and Islam. I mean, just it, you know, yeah. it, agreed. But uh, but you know, Orthodox Jews who pray to God think many of them. The normative view is that God does hear their prayers, right? Then they have the cha- we have the challenge of why we are praying to a God who is at least normatively omniscient and uh, knows what we already think. So, again, topic for another. I'm writing a book on prayer. Well, maybe we'll talk about it someday. Um, Let's talk about meditation while we're on the topic of spirituality. Uh, Talk about the nature of your personal practice. How did you come to it, and what does it mean to you? Well, I came to it, I was about, I was 18, I think, when I set my first meditation retreat. I, I'd come to it first through taking MDMA maybe six months before I sat my first retreat. I, what, I took MDMA. Uh, I had, you know, I had experimented with, with marijuana and maybe I had taken mushrooms a couple of times as a teenager, but I'd never done that in the context of thinking consciously about understanding anything about the nature of my mind. I was just, these just more fun party drugs that you know, teenagers were using at the time. But with MDMA, I was given it with the, the explicit framing, you know, you might really learn something about yourself if you take this, right? And so that's, it was really with that intention, and that was the set and setting of it. I was just sitting with my best friend, and we took this drug, which at that point, this was in, this would have been 85-ish, um, 80, 86 maybe and um, so it, it had just become illegal but it had just recently so I think it, I think it became schedule one in 85 I have to look that up but anyway MDMA at that point you know otherwise known as ecstasy now Molly um, was um, being widely used in the therapeutic community as a as a tool of insight and you know, I it sort of leaked out of that community and, and got into my hands at that point. And uh, so I had an experience on the drug, which 
will be familiar to many people who have taken it, um, but maybe not if you've t- took it at a rave or a party or a rock concert. Or I mean, it's not again. I think one's intentions matter here. Um, but I, I had this experience of, you know, for lack of a, of a better phrase, uh, unconditional love. Right? Just it, it was it was an experience of of not feeling high or altered or you know stoned or or it was certainly not a sense of my perception of the world being distorted it was it was actually an experience of being sane for the first time in my life and i just felt okay this is this is more real than what i've been tending to experience this feeling i'm i'm feeling right now it's not it's this is not an artifact of of pharmacology this is this was a stripping away of features of my own mind you know or it's a holding them in abeyance for the you know the period of the the drug's action that were obscuring this state of being that should should in principle in principle always be available to me right that's that's what i came away from it feeling like i had this experience of you know 4 hours or so where I lost all of my self-absorption, all of my self-consciousness, all of my concern of, for what other people think of me, and I experienced just perfect free attention to care, to, to both to care about others and to recognize that I do care about others, right, effortlessly, that my default is to want others to be happy and, and to really want them to be happy, not just, it's not, it's not just a... You know, you're not just checking a box on an inventory of 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 nice attitudes, but that I that my own happiness was bound up with theirs, right? And that and that that was love, and that it was a a, a feeling I I felt not just for the best friend who was sitting across from me in our living room, but I would have felt it for a stranger had he showed up at that moment. It's just like it just. That was my default, and so it was a way of being. It was not a transactional feeling of love. I love you because of our history together. I love you because of how much fun I have in your company. No, it was it was a feeling of love is the potentially the default state of consciousness in the presence of of other beings struggling to be happy in this world, and um, and it it just went very very deep. It was incredibly beautiful. It was. Uh, and but most important, it was a a state of mind that, on some level, was totally foreign to me. It's not that I didn't love people. I, mean, I love my mom. I love my friends. I loved, you know, I'd had a girlfriend or, or two or three at some probably by that point. But this was just the the the, the depth of it, and it's and it's. It's unity with my feeling of my own being. I mean, just what like the like the core of my own subjectivity. You know, it was a it was it was a proper spiritual slash mystical experience, um, but from one you know one from which I I came down, and then having come down, I was left to wonder, okay, what do I do about this? And that's you know the the first thing or one of the first things one one encounters when one faces that. That uh, riddle is meditation in some form as a as a way of 
of uh, moving forward. And, you know, rather than taking, you know, you can't just keep taking drugs again and again and again. I mean, that's not. I mean, some people attempt to do it that way, and obviously psychedelics are are very much in vogue at the moment. But um, it was clear to me that that if this was a a a feature of the human mind with or without drugs, and there's every, there was every reason to believe that's true because, you know, drugs don't cause the brain to do anything that the brain isn't capable of doing, right? It's not, it, all they can do is mimic neurotransmitters or or change the um, the behavior of neurotransmitters uh, in one form or another. So you're, this, is, uh, this is your brain in one of its states and however it got there. And so I, I was... I just became very interested in finding a a path by which I could integrate that wisdom and that uh, feeling, that kind of feeling of well-being, more and more into my life. And so then meditation became uh, a major part of my life. Uh, so that's like I guess half a long-winded half answer to your question. But as far as my meditation practice, briefly, I got you know I've practiced many many styles of meditation, but. Mostly in in a Buddhist framework. I, mean, I spent a fair amount of time in India and Nepal, uh, studying with various teachers, and, and they, they were not all Buddhist, but um, uh, it's been mostly Buddhist. And and uh, ultimately, I landed with. I spent a lot of time doing vipassana practice on silent um, vipassana retreats, which I know you're familiar with. And um, I it was I had, I had spent about a year on silent retreats over the course of a few years. Uh, I mean, the longest retreat I ever did was three months at, at uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Um, I, I did that twice, but then I did you know, multiple two months and one months and you know, many 10 days. And um, But then ultimately I connected with a, a practice called uh, Zogchen, which is a, often considered the... The, the highest non-dual teachings within Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and uh, so I spent a fair amount of time with, with Tibetan lamas uh, who you know, specialize in that practice, you know, otherwise known as Dzogchen masters, uh, studying that technique of meditation and spent some time on, on retreat doing that as well. But then a- after I got that practice in hand, my, my experience of mindfulness changed uh, in a, in ways that I you know I'm at pains to describe over at Waking Up uh, my meditation app uh, because I do think ultimately there's a, a very important difference between du- what I call dualistic and non-dualistic mindfulness and it's it's possible to spend a lot of time practicing dualistically in ways that are um, you know ultimately frustrating if you really are 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 uh, taken with the project of of getting to the bottom of of these things and um, and ulti- ultimately encouraging of, of certain illusions, which which can be painful. And I, and I and I was in the grip of those illusions for the longest time, even practicing quite diligently. I mean, even spending you know months at a time on silent meditation retreats, meditating you know twelve to eighteen hours a day. I was I was still seeking to solve a problem that was fundamentally misconstrued. I would say, um, and that's not for want of guidance. I was studying with really great meditation teachers, but there was a, a certain logic to, to that practice that I think is uh, misconceived, and perhaps we can talk about that. But anyway, so now I, you know, I consider myself someone who practices very much in the spirit of 
of what I would call Dzogchen practice, but that there are other non-dual ways of, of coming at this. And Mahamudra practice is, is like that. And I would argue within the, you know, outside of Buddhism, within, within the Indian tra- tradition, Advaita Vedanta uh, is, is articulate uh, more or less on the same points and recommends more or less the same style of attention, although most Buddhists would hate that, that facile comparison. So, Your description of MDMA um, reminded me of a couple of things. One, uh, Gary Greenberg is a past guest on here. In one of his books, he describes a, a similar experience. Um, I can't remember which drug he was under the influence of, but um, of just vast love for anyone he was encountering. And um, he earlier said, he said something like, the goal of life is t- is self-transcendence. Is that mm. So he said something like that, yeah, right? Yeah. And and I always think of that as growing up. Um, growing up is about learning. And I don't know if it just takes time, but it also might take some effort. It's learning that you're not the center of the universe. It's really hard to learn that lesson. I I have a new granddaughter. She's five months old, and she mm-hmm. really is the center of the yeah, universe. Yeah. And it'd be perfectly normal for her to carry that view for many years um, into her adult life. But what I experienced, and, and it, it it definitely came out of my silent meditation retreats. I don't have a very active practice of meditation now, and it, I'm thinking of revitalizing it. And maybe your app will help me, but what, is I was, what I was able to experience in the aftermath of the retreats I went on was a glimpse of what you're talking about. A feeling of self-transcendence and a connection to other people that you weren't aware existed Mm. until it came upon you. And you realized that much of your way of moving through the world was very narrow and you had cut yourself off and left yourself unavailable to things that are real. And I think, you know, once you've tasted that, some people want to take the drug more often. Some people want to meditate more often. Uh, for me, it's, I, I only get a glimpse of it now and then. I, I find it very hard to maintain and partly because I don't maintain the practice. But those retreats did have a permanent effect on me, which is fascinating in and of itself. They were only five days. Mm-hmm. A year apart, three times. And practicing in those years daily or often. Uh, An opportunity to see yourself in a different way, to see yourself connected to other people. And as you said, and you said it very beautifully, to imagine that their happiness could be paramount, not because it made you really happy, just because it's the way it should be. It's not even a, I wouldn't call it a rational Thing. For me, it was a time I saw someone go through a terrible trauma. Um, I was on an airplane, and this poor kid, teenager, young person, had to get off the plane before the door had closed. 
but she had to get off the plane. And um, it was clear that she, and I think she announced it because she was in a bad place, that she was on the way to get help with an addiction. And she couldn't do it. And she needed to get off the plane. And the person on the plane sitting next to me said, can you believe that her parents sent her on this journey alone? Mm. There was nobody restraining her, nobody arguing with her. We were all doing what we could to get her off the plane. The challenge was regulations mm-hmm. and the door had closed. And <clears throat> we did get her off the plane, but. Somebody's like, yeah, what kind of, can you imagine what kind of jerks her parents are that they wouldn't go with her? And I thought, can you imagine what her parents are like that she's addicted and broken and can't move through life? And and I just, that response emotionally to me was not available Mm -hmm. before I had done those retreats. I would have been annoyed. This is delaying our leaving. And I had a different experience. I was, and I'm very grateful for that. I wish I felt it more often. I try to feel it as often as I can. Um, but I do think that we have access to that if through, I've argued fiction, therapy, meditation, religion, all in theory can help you transcend yourself. And it is a fundamental opportunity for us as human beings. Because it's not the way we're hardwired. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that there are gradations to transcendence, right? I mean, there, there are different modes or, in which we can transcend ourselves. So the, the ultimate mode for me is transcending the sense of uh, the very sense that there's a you, that there's a, there's a subject in the center of your experience, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the final illusion, which, is targeted very directly by meditation. And, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning, and for the longest time, meditation can seem to ramify that sense of self because you feel like a meditator. You feel like the one who is directing attention at the object of meditation. And now you're becoming mindful and you're discovering it's hard to do that and you get lost in thought and then you come back. But there's this sense that you are behind the spotlight of consciousness focusing it and then failing to focus it, and then focusing it again, and it's there's, there's still there's still that you uh, that is at the center of things. But there's, there's different. You know, leaving that aside, I mean, let's let's just take the self as as it seems. There are obviously gradations of selflessness and selfishness, and uh, ways in which we can discover a bigger view of the project of becoming happy in this world that admits that we're on some level, all in this together, and that another person's happiness, uh, certainly a friend's happiness, is not in zero-sum contest with one's own. In fact, it can become very directly a reason for one's own happiness. And one of the you know the worst revelations uh, about the, the the poverty of of ordinary selfishness is to see those moments where one can't celebrate the success of a friend because one is envious say right I mean, that, that is just the the ugliest little wrinkle in you know the in the ordinary human psychology which is just to feel diminished by the happiness of another even one who you ostensibly love Care right yeah. yeah you know and it's um 
you know, so yeah, so we know we know that just again, this is not the highfalutin, you know, esoteric claims of spirituality. This is just ordinary human friendship. We know that really being a friend uh, requires that you actually want the best for your friends. And that includes wanting them to be happy, wanting their hopes and dreams realized, and being able to smile and celebrate when those those successes occur, right? And when you find that you can't do that, and with that cramp of self-concern and uh, that false structure that, that, su- that suggests some kind of zero-sum contest there, uh, that's... That that's the kind of thing everyone wants to transcend, really. Whether they think about it or not, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And it's it's the antithesis of love in that moment. I mean, love in that moment is, you know, to to use the, the Buddhist phrase, the ability to feel what's what's called sympathetic joy. Uh, you know, just the actual the, the contagion of of sharing the joy that your friend is is feeling at that moment. And we do this. You know, as parents, we do this, uh, you know, fairly effortlessly with our own children, but somehow it it, it becomes harder uh, in other contexts. And clearly, m- mental health ultimately, you know, the the the, the norms of of a healthy, happy, rewarding, ethical engagement with other human beings must push us in the direction of feeling that freedom to be happy with other people more and more and, and, and to extend it, extending the circle of that, even to strangers. I mean, even just to say, when you, how do you feel when you see someone succeed on television, someone you're never going to meet, but, you know, someone has just won the lottery, right? I, thought, I mean, many people feel this quite, quite uh, effortlessly, and it's, it's what's, what's um, addictive about certain forms of media. I mean, we do... We do feel the positive emotional contagion of, you know, when someone wins, we feel great for them. You know, we don't feel diminished by it. We we celebrate it, and that's you know, we, and and that's that's a wonderful thing. But I just we we should notice where we fail to do that, and the consequential moments in which we fail to do that. I mean, with to take the case I, the narrow case I just gave of of in, with friends, um, and those those are obvious opportunities for growth, and and uh, that is. You know, far more ordinary than the esoterica of transcending the sense of subject-object dualism in meditation, but it's it's on it's along the same continuum. I would argue. Can't help but think of Gore Vidal's quote. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know how much of it's tongue in cheek. Every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. Yeah. Um, not really the ideal, um, <clears throat> as you suggest. And you know, Adam Smith had a lot of interesting observations about this, um, our ability to sympathize with the joy of others and to empathize or sympathize with the grief of others. Um, What he doesn't write much about and what you're talking about is the opportunity to change the way we respond to those moments in life. Um, You know, I, I just want to mention, I, and I don't know if this is, you know a lot more about this than I do, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I find the modern emphasis on mindfulness to be rather empty. It, it's good to be mindful. It's a good thing. It's a tool. 
But mindfulness by itself, which is often sold as a, as, as a goal mm. and as a good, and it's been mocked as, you know, Mick mindfulness, the corporate yep. meditation session. Um, but mindfulness by itself is not, to me, very interesting. It, it's, it's what you're talking about. It's, it's the, and, and meditation correctly, whether from a Buddhist perspective or Jewish perspective or others, that I, again, those are the only two I know a little bit about, they do something much more than telling you to pay attention. They're telling you about how you should move in the world. And I, I think that is profoundly more important. Is that a fair critique? Yeah, well, yeah, well, even within Buddhism, mindfulness is just part of the path. I mean, it's, it's just one of the the eight folds of the eightfold path, right? Right, mindfulness. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the project is much larger than paying attention. I mean, paying attention is a, a necessary piece. Nice. Uh, yeah. nice. I mean, I, you, generally speaking, I, I would say there's there are two levels at which one needs to work on oneself. One is, uh, and both relate to the nature of thought, um, because thought is really what captivates us and deludes us and, and anchors our sense of separateness, right? So it's this identification with thought that is the problem from the point of view of meditation. But it's not that there's nothing worth thinking about, and it's not that thoughts don't matter. Uh, so there's really... There are two levels. There's there's the level at which we can change our thoughts and we can learn new things to think and we can believe differently and our beliefs matter and they 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 uh, govern our behavior and they um, uh, they di- dictate dictate the causes to which we are purposed and and the goals we form and all of that. I mean, it's all thought. I mean, thought is the thing that makes us human. Uh, so it, uh, and thought. Changing one's thoughts also gives one the power to reframe experiences and change one's relationship to them. So you can you can transform your f- sense of well-being and your your relationship to your experience and to the rest of the world by how you think. And so all of that is that's all very important to do. And so I mean, one example there, which I, I think is is crucial for living a good life is to have an ethical code and to decide, decide very clearly on things like, um, you know, whether it's okay to lie, right? Like your relationship to telling the truth or not is very, very important. And to come back to what we were saying about dogmatism uh, early on, it's, this is an area that I don't consider this dogmatic, but it is, you can have a very strong heuristic. Uh, and, you know, one very strong heuristic for me is that it's almost never the right thing to lie, right? So it's almost, it's almost always going to complicate your life unnecessarily. It's almost always an expression of fear and selfishness and separateness. And uh, it is another one of these things that's intrinsically divisive. Uh, and it you know, it's a violation yeah <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah i mean there there are many reasons i wrote a book titled lion and it's just my, my analysis of all the reasons we have to decide in advance uh that it's generally not okay to lie uh now there's an exception to this and i would just put uh, put lying 
on the really the first stop on the continuum of violence that is appropriately used under conditions of self-defense or in defense of other people, right? So I, I'm not a pacifist. I think pacifism, when you actually get to the bottom of it, is a it's actually an obscenely immoral uh, view uh, and and dogmatic commitment. So you know, Gandhi and pacifism, it's 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 worth remembering had him saying and saying things like he thought the Jews should offer themselves willingly to the crematory of Auschwitz so as to shock the conscience of of uh, their captors, right? So it's, it's just that that's the end game for pacifism. Uh, and that's not my view of an ethical world. I think at a certain point you have to start killing Nazis. Uh, and if you're, if you're going to carve out a space in which it's, it would be ethical to kill Nazis in self-defense, well, then it would also be ethical to lie to Nazis before you start killing them. So lying is, you know, do, do you ha- someone knocks on the door and says, do you have Anne Frank in the attic? I think it is ethical to lie to that person. But in the normal course of events, I think lying is is um, needlessly corrosive of, of everything we care about and sets people up for reputational destruction or should I, I don't actually I don't think there's nearly enough opprobrium attached to being caught lying in our society um, so there's all to say that that's the kind of thing that has to be thought about and reasoned about and argued about in advance it's all the domain of thinking uh, good thoughts in the end mindfulness and any other meditative instruction along those lines is not a matter of thinking new thoughts or, or thinking about anything at all, it's a matter of noticing very clearly what is arising in consciousness in each moment, including thoughts and emotions and, and everything else. The thing about mindfulness that is distinct from all of this is that it's not a matter of understanding anything conceptually. It's a matter of, of bearing witness to the mechanics uh, by which we become entangled with thought, the way thought drags in, into view emotions, positive or negative. And so much of this is the mechanics of our own suffering because so much of our conversation with ourselves is un, an unhappy one. Um, so mindfulness ultimately is a matter of breaking this spell. And uh, it's not a matter of suppressing thought. It's not a matter of getting rid of thought. It's not a matter of viewing thought as the enemy. Uh, but ultimately, and this is, you know, a statement of what the the goal is from a contemplative point of view. Uh, this is invoking an analogy from from the Dzogchen teachings. Ultimately, thoughts become like thieves entering an empty house. There's nothing for them to steal, right? There's no there's no implication uh, for one's sense of well being uh, presented by the next arising thought. It's just there's no problem. So it's really it really is not it, people form a false view of what meditation is about when they think uh and they're they're often taught this that thought is the antithesis of meditation or the antithesis of mindfulness or 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 the direct enemy of it. And it is it's natural to think that and feel that because in the beginning what you're faced with is the profound distractibility of your mind you just it's just damn hard to pay attention to anything and and so that so it seems like thought is the enemy but ultimately thoughts are just arising all by themselves in this wider context of conscious awareness and there is no thinker 
in addition to the flow of thought. There's no subject authoring the thoughts. There's no, uh, and the feeling that there is one is what it feels like to be thinking without noticing in that moment that you're thinking, right? I mean, so one thing that's implied by this, which you know, I don't talk about all that much, but uh, I think is true, is that even for non-meditators, even for people who have no idea what we're talking about now, the sense of self, the ordinary sense of subjectivity is being interrupted all the time. Uh, it's just not being noticed to be uh, interrupted there. And it's, 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 uh, there's an analogy one could draw to uh, the visual system. We all have this experience of uh, which is called uh, uh, visual saccade which is just our ordinary eye movements that occur something like three times a second, you know, as our, our eyes track over the, the visual scene. You know, our gaze is constantly lurching from point to point in the visual field. But we tend not to notice this because our conscious awareness of seeing is, is actively suppressed in when, when our eyes engage each one of those motor movements. Uh, and you can notice this diff- the difference here when rather than, than just let your eyes move naturally across the the, the world, um, you can t- touch the side of one of, of your eyes or one, just one of your eyes and jiggle it, uh, you know, however gently, and notice that that makes the world lurch around. When you move your eyeball with your fingertip, you know, that's not, uh, not a movement that your brain can correct for uh, in the usual way. And so then you see that, okay, this is, this is just jiggling the world when I jiggle my eye in that way. Um, the reason why we suppress, the brain suppresses vision during a saccade is that that, that would be happening every time you moved your eyes if you, you weren't doing that. So, uh, But it, the amazing thing is that we're actually functionally blind in these brief moments as we move our eyes, and we don't notice it. It's, it goes uninspected. And I, I would say that much of our feeling of selfhood is is um, interrupted in that kind of punctate way throughout the day. And it's only in retrospect when we're, when we're uh, reflecting on it or recoiling kind of back into self in relationship to others that, we, that our, our sense of, of egocentricity, our sense of being truly centered in our experience uh, becomes... Uh, Quite vivid, and, and we're just we're just very bad witnesses to to uh, all the the changes there, and all the perturbations and and um, the interruptions. And me- and meditation is the act of ultimately consciously interrupting it in a way, be- becoming mindful of those gaps, and and you know, even provoking those gaps deliberately with mindfulness. Well, that sense of self, we're not going to get into this because it's a be a long other conversation, but the, you know, the sense of self is very analogous to your views on free will. We, you argue we, have, we feel like we have free will. We feel like there's a self directing our thoughts, but in fact, you argue that, that that's not the case. Now, I'm intrigued by that, somewhat agnostic about it. And again, we'll talk about it maybe another time, but uh, certainly all of us having a feeling of daydreaming mindlessly hmm. our minds flitting from topic to topic and then suddenly we we become aware again not not as meditators just as a normal human experience at least i think so 
where you go, oh, well, I'm thinking about a bunch of random stuff. I think I should, I should figure out what I'm going to do this afternoon. And you sort of focus on that for a while. Then you maybe your brain jumps somewhere else. And then you say, well, that's depressing. I'm going to think about a pleasant memory. And you might go there. And you do feel like you have some control over that. Hmm. And you might argue, I think you do, that, it, that that's an illusion. But I think one of the challenges for people who are, who are, who come to meditation, especially from a Buddhist perspective, is that telling people they don't, that there is no self there is, is, um, to say it's pulling the rug out from under them or opening, you know, a strange hole under the floor and a trap door is, Hmm. um, is the least of it. It's just a very alien idea. So I think most people struggle because they feel otherwise. At least, yeah. as beginners. Yeah. Well, there's two things. One, you're you're telling people that they're wrong uh, in their most fundamental sense of their own being, and that's somewhat insulting. And uh, and it also just sounds like bad news, right? All of these words, you know, and and phrases and concepts, uh, especially in their Buddhist framing, sound depressing, right? I mean, the, to be told that selflessness or the illusoriness of the self is the final epiphany or the most important epiphany to be told that you don't have free will to be told that that emptiness is the ultimate reality right that all of this sounds spiritually gray and, and unfun it's a little bleak yeah but <laughs> but i would just say that this is just the the poverty of of english translation here i mean i, I think the the adjacent concepts which are also uh, descriptive are things like uh, unconditioned, open, free, centerlessness, centerless, um, uh, uncontrived, uh, unborn. I mean, th- these are um, uncontaminated, tranquil, peaceful, equanimous. I mean, there's there's other facets to this this same object, um, and. Yeah, I th- you know the when you talk about what's left, when you're not confused by an illusion, an illusion of your own subjective agency, it's not the feeling. It's not a feeling of powerlessness. It's a feeling of fearlessness, right? It's not. It's like the the the, illu- the illusion of control is the thing that also gives you this pervasive sense of jeopardy, right? It's like the, this is the, it's the, the fact that you're doing it, the fact that you're the, the man in the boat rowing in a frenzy, uh, uh, the fact that like all, it's, it is such a relief to recognize that there is no boat. There's just the river, you know, there's just the stream. There's no, there, there's no, place from which you the the inner you the subject is vulnerable right and that and and that epiphany is uh relieves you of a pseudo problem it's not like you solve the problem you thought you had to solve you recognize that the problem was misconstrued there, there's this story that I, I i stumbled upon uh online i think it's about 12 or 13 years old but i, I talk about it in over at waking up, I just think it's it's one of the it's a perfect found object to get at the logic of of this thing. 
there was um, a tourist bus in uh, some Scandinavian country that uh, that pulled into a rest stop, and there were about thirty people on it, and everyone gets off to enjoy the countryside and get some lunch. and And apparently, there was one tourist this who was described in the story as an Asian woman who got off the bus and, for whatever reason, changed her outfit, you know, at the rest stop. And then, when everyone got back on the bus, uh, someone declared that there was a missing passenger. Right? They, they didn't didn't recognize the Asian woman anymore in her new getup. Right? So, and there was a, a, an apparent language barrier. So there was a, you know some controversy here. They're waiting for somebody who's now not getting on the bus. And then it it this became some kind of moral emergency. Right? And then now there's a, a missing person, and so they form a search party. And this Asian woman who's you know, dimly aware of the controversy around her and now being told that someone's missing, you know, through pigeon, uh, some pigeon mutual language, uh, joins the search party. And the search party is looking for her, right? And this goes on into the middle of the night and, and, and helicopters are being readied for the, for dawn, a dawn patrol look, to look for this missing tourist. And at some point, I think you know, around three in the morning, I'm not sure what provoke the epiphany, but at some point she realizes that she's the missing tourist, right? And this whole you know, fabrication unravels. But what's interesting to me there is that it is untrue to say that the missing tourist was found, right? That the, the search was never consummated. It was not that the problem was solved, but it was definitely not solved by the logic by which the, pro- the, the the problem was was stated, and when you just think of what, what that's like, that that the dawning of this false project and the and its unraveling, um, there's something deeply analogous between that and the project of of you know, meditative epiphany when you're when you're looking. For the self, you're trying to, you're you're convinced that your ego presents a problem, and now you're trying to meditate your way out of that problem. And there's this implicit sense that, in some sense, the self that is the problem is going to be carried forward with that project, right? That you that you're going to be able to get there from your your starting point, and that's a false. Uh, assumption. It's just it, it's it doesn't the, the project doesn't proceed by that logic, and it certainly doesn't uh, reach fulfillment by that logic. The thing you think the, 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 at some level, you recognize that you are seeking, even in the mode of seeking as a meditator, is a false. Uh, point of view and its falsity is your problem right like the, the seeking itself the seeking happiness by whatever mode is an is tantamount to actively overlooking the thing you are in fact looking for there's a there's a uh, aphorism i think by this um british writer who went by the name of wei wu wei he, I think he lived lived for a long time in in hong kong uh, and his, it's, uh, it goes, a man went in search of fire with a lighted lantern. Had he known what fire was, he could have cooked his rice much sooner. 
right? It's like you're, you, you have the fire in hand, right? And yet you're taking it in search of fire, right? You're, you're, on some level, you're looking for what's looking. And it's had to, to really understand what you're about is to have the project unravel in an interesting way. And you're, and you're left, you're left at your starting point, uh, but in, in a, in a transfigured condition. And it's, it's, it, what's interesting is that this insight is, by definition, coincident with any moment of consciousness. It doesn't require the pyrotechnics of, of a psychedelic experience. It doesn't require that the contents of consciousness change in any way. I mean, it, it admits of any possible change. It's not going to block any change. You can, you know, you, you can have this insight in the presence of, of any experience, but it's, it's orthogonal to the contents of consciousness. It is just a recognition of what consciousness is like when you have not constructed a false center by identifying with thought. Two comments. <clears throat> You're talking about the self or transcendent of self or recognize the self doesn't exist. goes so against our culture in America, particularly in Silicon Valley. I know there are Buddhist threads in mm. Silicon Valley and mindfulness threads and meditation threads, but there's nothing more to me techno-centric than that guy rowing the boat and saying, just needs a motor mm. or he just needs better technique. Or if, he took, if he took nicotine, he could, he could row better. <laughs> so, so, so much of our culture push, pushes us, I think, in a different direction. The other thing I'm going to say, just an aside for any of my Hasidic listeners, I don't really understand this exactly, but it, it's so parallel. It's fascinating. The Meshuloach, who was a Hasidic thinker, argues that all of your good deeds are not your doing. They come from God's will. Mm. And all of your sins are not your responsibility. They, too, come from God's will. And the highest level of spirituality and, and connection is to recognize that because then there's no you. Yeah. It's just God. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very yeah, I love that. parallel parallel concept. Yeah. Um, you know, I would, one more question about related to this um, issue of connectedness and, and self-negation. For me, you know, I started meditating quite late in life, and I would just tell listeners who are older, who are maybe interested in these ideas, it, you don't have to start when you're 18 or 21. You can make progress any time in your life in self-awareness, uh, whatever techniques you use. Um, one of the things that I observed is that I did have more sympathy for other people and their predicaments. Um, and I often quote the line, Everyone's in a battle, so be kind. Mm. And I think when you take that to heart, you find yourself being less judgmental. And I would say that's, exa that's exactly the kind of example of, of changing one's thought and, and reframing that is that can be so ethically and psychologically useful. It's just a very simple idea. But you know, you're driving in traffic, and someone cuts you off, and you you have this default uh, contraction and. And uh, you know, 
clearly neg- neg- negative response, which you know, now goes by the name of road rage, right? Which is strange in its own right. But uh, as an antidote to that, you it's a very simple idea, and it really does work. You just realize you know nothing about the person ahead of you in in, in this car. You can't even see them. That this this could be a ninety year old woman who, for whom you should feel compassion. Uh, this could be someone who's racing to the hospital, uh, you know, late for the birth of their their first child. I mean, like it's like there's you you have no idea, and there and just a modicum of of um, charity uh, uh, and just agnosticism would leave leaves you far less judgmental of of all of that, and and the biggest possible view is is the one you just articulated. Uh, which is that you know ultimately nobody has made themselves you know even people who are behaving in in flagrantly unethical ways are on some level the equivalent of you know wild animals right and like what do you if you, if you see a, a grizzly bear eating people well yes you, you're you're going to respond you're not going to think that's not a problem you may kill the bear uh, if if there's no way to trap it. Um, and you may trap it and then decide there's nothing to do with it but kill it. Uh, or we might, we might create a maximum security prison for bad bears. But at no point along the way would we imagine that bears can be other than bears, right? And there, and, uh, you know, one thing that, that dropping the illusion of free will does for you ethically is, um, is it cancels the logic of hatred of other people. Like we, we, we don't hate bears as, as much as we might fear them. As much as we might respond violently to save ourselves or someone we love in the presence of a bear, at no point do you think that the that hatred is the is the right response. Um, I mean, just imagine, this is something that I talk about. I think I talk about it in my book Free Will, but I, I often talk about it when I, t- when I talk about this subject. Um, just just ask yourself the difference. I mean, if you were attacked by a man and he did something awful, let's say he, you know, he cut off your hand, right? And so you're you're grievously injured, and you know, this person gets caught, and and now you're you're sitting at trial, right? And you're watching, you're you're hoping this person goes to prison for the rest of his life, or even gets the death penalty, depending on your beliefs. And you you could imagine seething with hatred for this person and for what he's done to you and i mean maybe and if if you know you you couldn't readily feel this way about yourself well imagine how you'd feel if he had done it to your child right i mean there's some scenario where you could feel like uh, hatred is a totally apt response and a retributive conception of justice is the only mode ethically to be in i mean of course you want this person to be miserable for the rest of his life and to be ground to powder uh, on some level. Um, that is, that's a very natural human response, but I would argue it's a response we ha- that, that's anchored to this notion of free will, and we don't have this res- response to animals, right, that might injure us in precisely the same way. So if your child was, was injured by a grizzly bear, well, you might, you might, uh, you know, if you could, you, you, you might have killed the bear at that moment, but if... The bear is caught, and we're now having a tr- having a trial for the bear. You're not going to spend the rest of your life hating and wishing suffering upon this bear, right? It's just it's a very different f- feeling 
of of engagement with the the agency of another. Um, now, I'm not saying there's no relevant difference between humans and bears, and we can obviously talk to humans and seek to influence their behavior through education and and persuasion, etc. But certain people are are not persuadable. I mean, certain people are psychopaths. Certain people are not available to conversation, and we naturally hate them. Um, I'm just saying that it's it's there's a psychological freedom that's available to us, and I think a, a greater ethical wisdom that's available to us when we recognize that no one made themselves, and and you know if you had the same genes and same life experience and same environmental impingements and therefore same brain and brain states as this other person, you would be that other person, right? Helplessly behaving in these awful ways yourself, right? So it's, it's, um, uh, again, I'm not saying everyone gets off by reason of insanity. I'm saying that, that hatred ultimately doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, we would build prisons for hurricanes if we could, because they're so destructive, but we would never hate them in the way that we hate other human beings. I find that very powerful. I, I, I find it very powerful and persuasive on the on a personal level. And, and, and by the way, I should mention, you know, David Foster Wallace's graduation speech, which is glorious mm-hmm. and is sometimes available on the web, sometimes not in various forms. Um, there's a video version of it that's really quite spectacular. If it's still up, I'll try to find it. But, but what, why is you know, it not this, always makes, up? But you're saying it gets taken down periodically? Well, the yeah, the video version of it got taken down for a while, hmm. and I couldn't find it. But the speech you can find it's it, it's in books. Um, but he's he makes a similar point about road rage, and he uses the you know you're in line and the end of a long day, and the cashier in front of you is in your line is chit chatting with some um, person, and you're annoyed because you're in a hurry. And it's a brilliant yeah yeah it's a brilliant rendition of this point. You know, I, I I had it hasn't aired yet, but I, I recently interviewed. Uh, it'll come out before this conversation. Interview Vinay Prasad, the oncologist who's made a bunch of observations about wrote a beautiful essay, an angry essay, a screed about people in public health and educators and others who he feels failed their duty in the pandemic. And did what was convenient or beneficial to them, safe. And he confessed on my program that he had written that in the aftermath of of the Uvalde school shooting, where policemen hmm. failed to do their duty and and enter the classrooms where shootings were taking place, and children died. And in commenting on that, I unconsciously. Uh, put in a parenthetical phrase like, well, I can't really judge them because, you know, maybe if I'd been in their shoes, I might have done the same thing. And it it raises the the challenge that on an interpersonal level, I think we should be incredibly nonjudgmental with our siblings and our spouse and our friends and our loved ones. But at the public policy level, if we do not judge and condemn if we always forgive because there's no free will, I think that comes at a cost. There's a benefit to it, by the way, but I think there comes a cost. Do you agree? Well, I, 
again, I'm not standing quite where I think you think I am there because I, 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 I do see quite a bit of scope for moral outrage at the, at the public policy level. I mean, as, as people who've listened to my podcast will know, I've spent a lot of time condemning bad policy or what I think is bad policy and, and, and the people who purvey it and also just condemning specific people who I think uh, create an immense amount of unnecessary harm in our society. So I've been incredibly critical of Donald Trump and I think you know, you know, Trump and Trumpism are, have been awful for us. Uh, at no point does that entail a belief in his free will. I don't think Trump can be other than, than what he is. But I, but I think it's um, it's just bad to have elected a person of, the, of those qualities and, and character uh, to the highest office in the land, and so it's just it's it's a bad outcome. That that is if if we can steer away from future bad outcomes by reacting to this bad outcome by criticizing it, by bemoaning it, by pointing to the various misconceptions about. Uh, the world and 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 what to do within it uh, that delivered us that outcome. Well, then I, I do think outrage is an appropriate emotion uh, by which to express those criticisms. Often, it's not. It's not. Again, it's not. It's not ordinary anger or hatred that attributes to people powers they don't have, but it's a a response. To uh, to things that 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 they've said and done, which it, at least admits of the hope of influence, right? Like the, some people can be influenced, some people can be persuaded, and and so, some people have better judgment than can be, that can be appealed to. And so, therefore, so you take you know Vinay Prasad's criticism of his own field of you know of his fellow doctors, and in particular, uh, I would imagine, although I haven't heard your conversation yet, you know, public health officials and epidemiologists and the CDC and FDA, uh, you know, implicit in his outrage and his expression of it is the hope that it will matter to someone, it will pers- persuade someone, and we will not make the same mistakes next time. Uh, and I, I do. Th- I do think outrage is appropriate. So I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to lose that emotional tool. I do because I do think certain things are emergencies to which we can respond. Uh, should doesn't that conflict with the compassion I should feel for those people? No, no. So yeah. So no, it does. Or it, that it, I would think you would suggest I should feel for them. Yeah. No. It, it, it's it's just different modes. I mean, so the Uvalde shooting was was especially. Uh, vivid and painful instance of this, where so because I have I have very uh, strong beliefs and you know fairly well formed beliefs about uh, circumstances of this sort. I've spent a lot of time studying human violence and you know training in the martial arts and with firearms, and I've I've done a lot, you know several podcasts on these topics, and um, you know I spent a lot of time with cops and and uh, etc. So. You know, when I saw Uvalde, you know, it was a disaster on every level, and it was an expression of incompetence and and um, uh, you know failures of nerve on 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 every level. So I I I, I was as judgmental 
of what happened and didn't happen there as anyone, right? But in its after, when, when I look at its aftermath, when I look at the cops who failed and, and who know they failed and who are now uh, suffering under some kind of damaged uh, selfhood, really, given the level of, of, of shame you know, that... that um, they they might feel in light of you know what they failed to do there. Um, I mean this this was after all Texas. I mean of you know irony of, of of ironies. I mean just to see this. You could imagine some place this would happen, but you can't imagine it would happen quite this way in Texas, right? I mean this is the scent. This is the the the, the sanctum sanctorum of of uh, the this you know the, the religion of the Second Amendment. Um, and yet, you know, good guys with guns did absolutely nothing to save our children. Um, it's, uh, I feel compassion for those guys. I mean, it's like, it's hard to imagine someone I would, I would less rather be than the, the chief of police who, who was, who, whose call it was to not uh, go in you know, he he actually never made the call to go in. It was a it was a border patrol agent who went in on his own uh, and solved the problem um, after seventy two minutes. I think. Um, I mean, it's just it, you know what an awful human experience to have, right? So I do feel compassion for that person. I mean, he's suffering about whatever is going to happen to him as a result. You know, I don't know if he's going to be prosecuted or in any way, but I don't, you know, uh, it's interesting to consider the, the ethics and uh, around prosecuting people for crimes. Uh, this probably isn't the best example of this, but there are many crimes that are, that are atrocious, but they're, they're crimes that, you know, they're often crimes of passion or they're, they're such that, you take one look at the at what's happened here, and you know that the the offender is never going to offend again, right? You know, the, this is not a the person who this this goes to the the concept of moral luck, which is I, I don't know if you've talked about it on your podcast before, but it's a very very useful concept given to us by the philosopher Thomas Nagel. But he pointed out in one of his essays that so much of human morality depends upon luck in ways that we find very difficult to integrate into our thinking. So, you know, we've all, we've all done things, uh, let's say, behind the wheel of a car that uh, we've gotten away with by you know, pure luck. We've all had one drink too many. We've all been texting occasionally. We've all been fiddling with the radio when we shouldn't have. And someone today somewhere is going to be doing one of those uh, otherwise benign things uh, but not get away with it. You know, he's going to look at his phone for one second too long and kill someone in the crosswalk, you know, or kill someone's kid, right? And so then what, so what do we do in those moments? And well, well, those people often get prosecuted and we feel that they should because we feel like the only way to deter this kind of negligence is to set an example of these people. And so people will go to prison for having killed someone's kid in a crosswalk while texting. But it is interesting to consider the the ethics of this because, I mean, you know, I mean, just imagine being someone who was texting with friends and you you wind up killing someone's kid, right? I mean, that the punishment 
in full is delivered right there. I mean, I mean that is the that person is already in hell, right? And now we're going to yeah. put them in prison. And who we're certainly not deterring them. I mean, the idea that they're going to be texting again is seems pretty far fetched while driving. Um, so it's you know it's an interesting thing to think about. I'm not I'm not saying we we don't need to put people in prison for for negligence ever, but compassion is appropriate there. I mean, it's just it's just awful to consider that happening, and we we've all gotten away with that. Right, so it's just we're not we are that person. We're just the lucky version of that person, and so uh, compassion is appropriate. Well, I had a lot of other questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you about why you left Twitter, whether you're worried about Chat GPT, whether you think Dostoevsky was right that if God is dead, everything is permitted. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the possibility that God exists? But you want me to rapid fire all of those within for another time, ninety seconds. Okay. Oh yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a yeah one of those rounds where you get ten seconds for each one. I hate I, that. I, could, I like think that? I could hit all of those very fast. I, well, I could do it. I okay, could. let's do it. Oh, let's do yeah. it. Here we go. Okay. You ready? Okay. Yes. So okay, you ask me each uh, one in why turn. Why did you leave Twitter? Because it was making me a worse person. Are you worried about artificial intelligence and chat GPT? Uh, in the limit, I am worried about artificial intel- intelligence. I think th- it's possible to to create it in a way that is not aligned with our well-being. And in fact, there, there may be more ways to do that. Uh, and therefore, there, there's ample reason to be worried. I'm not, I'm interested in chat GPT. It's, it's, it's not quite at a spot where I'm, I think it's going to cancel uh, too many jobs. But ultimately, I think we, we're going to have to integrate something that p- perfectly passes the Turing test into our our working lives and and if you know well, we should we have to figure out how to make use of the tool rather than have it ruin things for us i mean i just think it could be incredibly valuable and and fun and uh we have to make room for it um it's a big problem but and i don't think we're set up well to to do it without without some painful hiccups but it's i think it's not going away Dostoevsky said in the Brothers Karamazov that if God is dead, everything is permitted. I have a feeling you don't agree. I don't agree. No. no I do. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, can you imagine the possibility that God exists? Uh, of course. Yeah. But I, I can also imagine the possibility that, that Zeus exists and, and Poseidon and all of the other dead gods who we're not worried about. So, yes. You're so open-minded. <laughs> <Sam>. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> My guest today has been Sam Harris. Sam, thanks for being part of the talk. Pleasure, Russ. Thanks again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.